0: Pigeon hold. pigeon Pigeonhole.
1: Pigeonhole. 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 Last month's episode was a short interview with Jess Tom of Tourette's Hero. And there were so many things that I edited out for the short episode that Jess had said around Tourette's, about what lots of non-disabled people think about paying attention and showing respect, and about accessibility. I wanted you to have the rest of that conversation. So this episode is an extended version of last month's episode. For me, the hardest part in an interview is follow-up questions. Okay, (laughs) I actually often straight-up miss questions that are written on the page right in front of me, questions that I thought of and typed up myself. But if something's not on the page, it's really, really not likely to come out of my mouth. I end up sticking to script a lot of the time, or sort of blathering to pass the time while I try to retrieve that interesting thing that's now hiding in the far, dusty corners of my mind. But with Jess, it was different. Although she explains here that her vocal tics aren't about what she's actively thinking about, without planning to, I started using her tics as jumping off points for a conversation. What's the point of ignoring them or of pretending that she doesn't have Tourette's? When I sat with Jess in a downtown Portland hotel to gather her stories, I didn't plan to talk about ableist discos or ableist disability benefits assessments. I had somewhat wondered if I should talk about biscuits and maybe hedgehogs, but I didn't plan to. But in the moment, it turns out that even asking about biscuits opened up a whole world I didn't expect— which is Jess's signature move. Hedgehog. I'll test the volume by asking you to describe. Seriously, what kind of biscuit is this? Biscuit.
0: Well, biscuit, it is a British biscuits. So they are very broad, lots of variety. You get a jammy dodger, which is a sort of round biscuit with jam in the center. Pink wafer, which is a wafery biscuit with cream in the middle. Very dry, bland, digestive biscuits. But basically, they're cookies, but usually less exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, the volume's great. I don't know, when you say biscuit, do you see a biscuit? No, 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 biscuit. My, My thoughts are totally biscuit biscuit free. I biscuit none of the things that I tick are things that I'm consciously thinking about at all. That's why I'm able to have a conversation, I I think, because my thoughts are totally, totally clear. So in my head, I'm just biscuit. Cats, I'm just talking fluently. Biscuit, but obviously there's this um, biscuit, automatic biscuit. Um, Interruption into my speech, biscuit,
1: which are the ticks, the vocal ticks. Biscuit. So part of my my neurodiversity is that I have a lot of linguistic and sonic stims yeah I think a lot of non-disabled people might call your tics distracting or you know interruptions or disruptive but for me your tics really relax me in this way that I usually don't feel because I'm picturing the things that you're saying Mm -hmm. and also the sound of you repeating words is like my stim dream come true (laughs) biscuit
0: yeah biscuit well that I think Biscuit, lots of people edit them out. So Biscuit at the beginning will hear like every single Biscuit. biscuit, And then Biscuit will get so used to them and familiar with them. Biscuit, the very regular ones, perhaps almost disappear to them. And people say, oh, Biscuit, you haven't really, you know, you haven't really ticked very much or you haven't really said Biscuit very much. It's like, I have, you've just stopped hearing it. (laughs) Biscuit, which is really interesting. And I think often people think they're going to find something really disruptive or distracting, Biscuit. In reality, actually, brains are much more flexible than that. Biscuit, cats.
1: First of all, I could never not notice them, but also th- it's so pleasant, it's yeah. so yeah. delightful, and I can't really follow conversations yeah. when the topics change too fast. Yeah. But yeah. like, I just stem out on your text. <laughs> biscuit. Well, I
0: suppose for that they're they're really useful because I mean they're obviously very changeable, biscuit. But they are like they they are relatively consistent, biscuit. I. Biscuit don't really notice the regular ones, biscuit. Um, but biscuit, but sometimes they're really like funny and surprising, and I get quite shocked by things. You know, very, very occasionally do I get really shocked by something I've said or really biscuit embarrassed by something I've said. It's not very often, but it does happen sometimes. <laughs> you cats. I think biscuit Tourette's is definitely a condition where people. I think because it's so complicated, and biscuit because brains aren't brilliantly understood. Biscuit sometimes people can become really focused biscuit, on that outward expression, the ticks as the outward expression of biscuit of my neurodiversity, and biscuit will therefore try and say, "Oh, you're ticking loads. Is that because you're angry or stressed or frustrated, or or you're not ticking very much? Like you must be better." That scrutiny, biscuit, of people's bodies and the sort of assumptions and preconceptions that go along with that um, can be really wearing. It's, you you know, they're not necessarily the things that are dangerous in our existence, but they are the things that are exhausting. I think that can be really tough, particularly for children and young people as they're, you know, who have fluctuating conditions and who, you know, are also, you know, going through puberty or managing people's sort of assumptions and preconceptions about young people. I think, Biscuit, as a society, we have this idea that focus and concentration looks a particular way. Biscuit, that if you're quiet and still, then that's how you give attention. And it's like, if I am quiet and still, I am not focusing on what you're saying. I am Biscuit. I'm using all my energy and attention, Biscuit, to control my body. Actually, if I'm moving around and making noise, I'm much better able to... Concentrate and take in whatever's happening around me. And I think that's definitely not just related to Wretch. To, to that spans, let get a really wide variety of people. But this idea that attention is like, you can only focus in this one way and that's the way you have to show respect and concentration and care. All of those things are about trying to, you know, normalise different types of experience. Actually, if we just all had a more flexible attitude to what what we're expecting and not expected You know, normative behavior. If we had a wider understanding of what it means to be a human being, biscuit, then I think we would naturally create better spaces for people whose bodies and minds work differently.
1: Biscuit. Cream okay. Cheese. So, um, mm, I love cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of missed it. What kind of cheese did you Cream say? Cream cheese. Oh, I like a more sliceable biscuit. cheese. <laughs>
0: We once did a show in London and we'd been touring our, our previous show backstage in Biscuitland, you know, all over the country. And it's a show that makes space for my tics and gives like gives them room to be creative and to be really abstract and be really surreal. Biscuit. And then we were doing this show in London and Biscuit and my tics literally only talked about doorways and cheese for the entire show. With, a, with an occasional reference to Alan Hansen, who is a really obscure football commentator from the 1980s. This is a show about creativity, and all I've talked about is cheese and doorways. And I, was, I felt I was really pissed off at Tourette's that day. I was like, my ticks have totally abandoned me and just, just left me with doorways and cheese.
1: <laughs> and Alan Hansen, who in a previous interview was in your handbag, I think. Yeah, quite possibly. He does crop up in all sorts of places. Is Tourette's like your improv partner or your writing partner? Yeah,
0: after okay. this as, as a as a creative person, biscuit using ticks as a way of um, accessing spontaneous creativity is definitely some part of my practice. Biscuit, and I think that stems back to the to the very first idea that is the is at the heart of Tourette's Hero as an organization, biscuit, um, which is that to not use ticks creatively would be wasteful. So Matthew, um, who's the co-founder of Tourette Zero, described uh, my tics as a language generating machine and told me not doing something creative with them would be wasteful. That idea, that sentence, I was able to hear in a totally different way. We'd had loads of conversations about Tourette's and like they had nearly always ended in tears. I found it really hard to talk about my tics at that point. And certainly, you know, I know that he'd talked to me about the sort of using them you know, creatively. And he talked about being quite envious of some of the ideas that my tics generated. And I didn't get it at all. But then as soon as he described this idea of a language generating machine, that really captured my imagination. And I've also been brought up to believe that being wasteful is really bad. So this the idea that I was wasting this creative energy or resource um, stayed with me. And I was slowly able to see that they had value biscuit um and that talking about different types of experience had value and that biscuit feeling upset or sad about biscuit Tourette's was something that I had been conditioned to do rather than actually reflected my experience biscuit hair chug. People always ask me about, like, why biscuit? Um, I'm often asked, uh, biscuit, if my chest hurts when I bang it, which is, uh, you know, I've got a motor tick where I thump my chest hundreds of times and people are often concerned to me about that, which is, I understand. People are often really curious about my sleep and how I sleep. Um people are often curious about whether i would take a magic pill and make my text go away i always say that i would be much more interested in a magic pill that made society uh, more inclusive and cured ableism <laughs> um, than changing my body um, but i think i think there are some of the things that probably aren't talked about are Things that are maybe some of the darker things around having having an impairment and the lack of power that that can bring. And I think this. Yeah, I think I don't get very many opportunities to talk about how precarious my life sometimes feels. It feels precarious because lots of lots of the great things about my life are dependent on decisions of other people. So. I am not disabled by my body, but I would be disabled by a lack of support. And I have great support um, at the moment, but that always feels like that's something that could be taken away. And I think lots of disabled people who require support, I think probably feel this precariousness about that. And there's a certain urgency, I suppose, to some of my work because I feel like I have to do this now in case some of that is whipped away from me. And I don't think that that is something that much time is given to um, in lots of more mainstream conversations because people want to focus on my body, not on the systems that enable me to live. Biscuit, cats, sausage, disco.
1: And many discos are probably not wheelchair accessible yeah
0: yeah yeah well exactly they I work there's um there's a great organization in the UK called attitude is everything and they promote disabled people's access to live music and I've been doing incredible work uh, both around working with venues and festivals to make sure that disabled people have access to music and dancing as as uh, audiences but also as performers um and they have a charter that different venues sign up to. Um, Biscuit and I went out for a friend's birthday fairly recently and uh, Biscuit looked at the venue and could see that they've got attitudes, is Everything, Bronze, Standard, and all the information looked like spot on. And when I arrived, they were really, they knew exactly where I was going. They were, like ramps were quick, they were really friendly. They took me straight to the viewing area and was like, this is the wheelchair viewing area. And I was like, great, that's amazing how do I get to the dance floor? And they were like, oh no, the dance floor's not accessible. And I was like, what? like, wow, I've come out for a night of dancing with like a group of 30 other people. And you're saying that my like the only option I have is to watch from this balcony, people dancing. But I think places often feel uncomfortable with saying this is not accessible. And so they don't say anything and I think that that is another thing that we really need to tackle the embarrassment so if you feel embarrassed about it not being accessible make it accessible but if it isn't accessible and you can't change that or you haven't changed that yet you have to make that really clear so that people can make decisions about their about their well-being and what they do like maybe we would have gone to a club with an accessible dance floor maybe we wouldn't but whatever whatever happens it's really essential to share that information and it's not my responsibility all the time to be checking access. I like there's a, a an idea that I'm really interested in that I read an article about, but it was the concept of forced intimacy. Um, the idea of forced intimacy was the idea that disabled people are um, required to give really personal information about themselves over and over and again to, to strangers in order to uh, access or know whether they can access something. Particularly, lots of places will say, contact us if you have any access requirements. How do I know if I have any access requirements if I don't know what you're already providing? If your building isn't wheelchair accessible, then I have access requirements. I need a ramp or I need an accessible space. But I don't know whether that's necessary or not if you don't tell me. And so often the emphasis is put on disabled people to like, spill the beans about every aspect of their personal life to get access to something that non-disabled people don't need to do that. You know, I'm very lucky that I have a package of support that meets my requirements at the moment. I'm aware that I haven't always had that and I won't necessarily always have that in the future. So the support that I need at work comes from a separate pot of funding um, and actually for a long time I had support in work but not support at home. I was much more independent at work than I was in my leisure time and I used to dread weekends and I never used to take any vacation because I didn't have support. What's the point in me taking leave if I'm then just going to have to sit on my bed for days on end? So I'm, I'm lucky that I now do have support at home but I have to justify every aspect of that. So you know I have an annual like review and fairly recently I had one and it was like I was having to, you know, justify why I had 45 minutes of support to have dinner in to have my evening meal. And it was like, it's, that's quite a long time for for having an evening meal. And it's like, well, it's not if someone's gonna prepare you something and help you eat it and, you know, and then they were like, oh, why do you need an extra 15 minutes to get washed at the weekend? And it's like, well, you know, that's because I might wanna wash my hair or, you know, condition it. The idea that you have to just justify every tiny part of your intimate life and world, like, is exhausting. But also, Biscuit, I have lots of privilege within my life as a disabled person, but in those conversations, you know, when my social worker was talking about my big care package and, you know, she was saying that repeatedly, that language of consumption of resources, Biscuit, it's really easy to internalise that language and to feel shame. And I immediately went to, you know, felt feeling guilty that I had more support than other people or feeling like I was consuming resources, even though actually the funding that I get then pays other people to provide my support and makes me an employer and goes back into the economy and all these things that, you know, within a capitalist system are, like, you know, are how it's been set up. However, the idea that to be a disabled person automatically means consumption of resources and burden and um, is something that I have to actively fight against in my own mind. It's just all our systems have that language built into them. Medical systems across the world um, and doctors across the world are trained with the idea that to be a disabled person is to or, you know, it's to be a failed person, you know, in their eyes. It's like they're so focused on fixing and curing. If they can't do that, that that's something that's very confronting. So there were, like, there were sort of probably four key things that meant that I uh, that I made it to the stage. One of those was that I was uh, went to see a show by an amazing comedian called Mark Thomas, who was doing a show called Extreme Rambling, Biscuit at the Tricycle Theatre in London. And it was about him walking the Palestinian separation barrier. Um, And so it was about segregation and it was about a subject that I was really interested in. I hadn't been to the theatre for ages, but I really wanted to go. So we got in touch with Mark, we got in touch with the theatre, Biscuit, we met him beforehand. He introduced me to the audience. We did all of this preparation skip but despite all of that I was still uh, asked to move at the intermission because of the noises I was making and I was asked to sit in a sound booth at the side of the stage behind glass and so we were watching the show about segregation and about separation from this segregated position and I absolutely sobbed I felt so humiliated and upset and I in that moment I promised myself that I would never, Set foot in another theatre again, um, because it felt damaging to me, and it was like felt like I got the very clearly got the message that this isn't a space for you. And fortunately, that wasn't a promise that I kept. So that was a key moment in realizing that the only seat in the house that I knew could definitely knew that I wouldn't be asked to leave was on the stage. So occupying that space and making a show about like my experiences accessing live performance, but you know, felt important in that moment it didn't but that was a key moment on the line on the on the journey on the road to that another key moment was going back to the same theater a year later to see Francesca Martinez's show What the Fuck is Normal it wasn't a perfect experience but we but again it was a negotiated experience and uh what I did see was somebody whose experiences reflected my own and made me feel confident that that was something that I could do biscuit and and should do this kid. Then Matthew went to the um, Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival. He looked out shows about disability and found that there were very few. Um, this and, But he did see some work that really, it made him think we should take a show to Edinburgh. And he went in 2013 and we took the show in 2014. So it was a very quick turnaround. And the other thing, the other key moment is that I got on stage at a festival, a music festival with an amazing comedy songwriter with bipolar disorder called Captain Hot Knives who has an incredible mind and and makes these hilarious songs and stories and Biscuit never writes down a single lyric but Biscuit um the first time we met um Biscuit he was tuning his guitar and then my tics started uh uh, uh, going off in sort of surreal tangents. And then he was super quick to turn them around and make use them as the starting point for stories. And so we uh, we got on stage together and did that um, uh, for the first time. And it's something we've gone on to do lots and lots. And I, we describe it as a masterclass in spontaneity because neither of our brains are able to do the same thing twice. Uh, and I suppose all of those things came together to make me feel that I needed to take up space in cultural venues, and that I felt confident to do it. Um, And that that would add Biscuit, a load of extra stuff to everybody's experience. If the only narratives that you have about disability are from the mainstream press, then, you know, basically all you've got to draw from are the sort of tragic, uh, overcoming, uh, burdensome stereotypes. And that's not what many disabled people's lives look like. Let's go. The amazing um, Stella Young, who sadly died a couple of years ago, she has done the most brilliant TED talk on the concept of inspiration porn. And I think the the line within that that I just was so, like, just so blown away by, and just was like, yes, yes, yes was actually when she said, very, at the very beginning, um, I'm here to tell you that you've been lied to about disability. And we've all been lied to about disability and we've been told that disability is a bad thing and to live with disability makes you exceptional. It doesn't, it isn't a bad thing. And to be a disabled person doesn't make you exceptional. Biscuit, headshot, catch. I have a really interesting relationship with inspiration as an idea. And as a form, because as a disabled person, my natural inclination is to hate anything to do with inspiration uh, because of how often it's used in relation to disability in really patronizing stereotypes and damaging ways. However, I went to an event a couple of years ago and heard this amazing woman speaking about whistleblowing uh, on a horrific abuse scandal in the UK and how long it had taken her to get that to be heard. And how clearly she advocated for young people who were being abused and 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 damaged by that by people and a system. I was just listening to her, and I thought I was like, oh, "I this is so amazing," and I I'm going to change how I do things, and I'm going to think about it. And then I was like, I was like, "Shit, I've been inspired, biscuit." And I realised that I have this really like difficult relationship with the word inspiration, but actually. To inspire change, to be inspired, is like an incredible and beautiful act and is an incredibly humane act. From that moment on, I was like, I'm gonna really work to try and alter my relationship with inspiration, to reclaim it as a word and as as an experience, biscuit, but to make sure it is only ever being used when it has really inspired action rather than just is like, at least my life is not like that. Mm my aim is to inspire people in lots of ways, but not to inspire them because I'm disabled. I want people to change and create a more inclusive society and I know that humour and art are powerful ways of inspiring and catalyzing that change. Biscuit. Sausage!
1: Every episode is transcribed. Links... Guest info and transcripts are all at com. my disability arts blog. I'm Cheryl. And this, this is, is Pigeonhole. Pigeon hole. Pigeonhole. Don't sit where society puts you.